Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. We're well into our first season. Thank you all for the support thus far. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories, stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you're enjoying today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Richard Faison. Richard, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Now, we always like to start way back at the beginning. So... um, where we want to end up is uh, kind of uh, some of the most important personal and or professional uh, moments you like to share. But to get started, let's go all the way back to uh, your childhood. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Harlem Hospital in New York. I'm the last of nine kids. Wow. Okay. And tell me about family life. Uh, Nine children. Did you grow up around your family? What, What was the dynamic? Well, unfortunately, no. Um, my mother gave all of us up. I was kind of a sickly baby. I know you can't tell by looking at me now, but yeah, he's strong looking. <laughs> <laughs> back then, the folks that brought me from New York to Philadelphia at about the age of six months, I had to spend three months in the old children's hospital in South Philly, and it was touch and go. They didn't know if I was going to live or die, but the Lord was yeah. gracious. Really, it's kind of a Moses story, you know, cast into the river, put out by Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, the folks that officially adopted me, they were in the grandpa, grandma age, because they were 50 and 51. And now they've got a little snot-nosed, six-month-old, nine-month-old baby, and uh, just recovering from some really bad illnesses. But they took me to their heart. They were a loving couple. It was, I couldn't have asked for a better environment. Yeah. They both loved the Lord. They treated me as if I were their blood. And so growing up in that household was actually fantastic. Now, what was the reason that they had adopted later in age? It would have to be the Lord must have really laid it on their heart. Their daughter knew my family in New York. She brought me to Philly. They could see that there was some real issues going on since the dynamics in my biological family were such that all of us were given away. Wow. It was either that or I would have become a ward of the court here in Philadelphia. And obviously they didn't just want to see that happen. So they embraced me. They took me in. They went through the costly and legal ramifications of doing the official adoption. And uh, here I am today. Yeah, now, six months you didn't know what was going on. At what point did you realize you, kind of, did you get more of the context on the story? To be honest with you, they didn't tell me I was adopted until I was about 10 years old. And it it was a conundrum because I couldn't figure out why my parents were so much older than everybody else's parents. Mm. I mean, because they were in their, by this time, they were in their late 50s. And Mm -hmm. all of the kids' parents that I knew that I went to school with, they're in their 20s and 30s. I I Mm -hmm. just couldn't figure it out. But when they sat me down and told me that I was adopted, I was stunned. I couldn't 
process that somebody didn't want me because all I had known was unconditional love in their household. Yeah. So quickly, uh, I must have cried about 10 minutes or so. And uh, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. I, I, you know, I'm not. You're like, OK, let's let's go. Let's think about this. I wasn't much of a crier then. OK, not much of a crier now, but I cried about 10 minutes. But it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I reconciled in my heart some real hard feelings for my biological mom. Like, yo, why'd you give me up? Mm. As a kid, it's hard for you to really process that. So it took a while. Well, you also don't you don't have necessarily all the the skills to think about how to process it. So, I mean, for you as a child, how did you deal with that? How you know, or at least how did you come to grips with it? How did you not necessarily cope, but at what point did you feel like, okay, I understand maybe there's a broader dynamic that um, could lead to this situation? Well, I knew I was confident in their love, but then my mom died a year after they made this revelation. That's my adopted mom. And my dad did remarry. And this plays into that whole coping thing. He did remarry. Mm-hmm. And then my stepmother died my senior year in high school. So my second year in middle school, my mom died. And then my stepmother died my senior year. So I'm like left this gaping hole emotionally. Wow. That was more of a Mount Everest to overcome emotionally than dealing with the fact that my natural mom didn't want me. I took solace in the fact that it wasn't just me, me, there was something wrong with me. She gave us all up. My Mm -hmm. other eight siblings, okay? And as an ironic twist to the Shakespearean story, one of my sisters actually grew up on my block in South Philadelphia about three houses down, but neither of us knew we were brother and sister. Wow. And to fight like cats and dogs, which... So you knew each other, but you had no well, idea you were, there was any relation. Didn't find out until decades later. So hmm. that's, um, you know, I think she... That's was, fascinating. Yeah. I, I want to come back to that. So just to have the, the beat, so, you know, you get adopted around six months... You don't find out you're adopted till about 10. And then into your early teens, 15 or so, the uh, woman that uh, you become to know um, in your house uh, as your your mom, she passed away. And then your dad remarried and then your stepmom. So, uh, you know, how was that relationship? Uh, and then you're like, you know, about a year later, she passed away. Okay, so that wasn't a great relationship. It wasn't. And here's the irony of that. Now, my adopted mom passed away when I was 11. Mm-hmm. My dad remarried a year later. So he remarried, I was like in my freshman year in high school at Central, because they started ninth grade. My stepmom died my senior year in 68. And we had a very contentious relationship up until the latter part of my junior year in high school. Like a typical teenager, I'm kind of in a rebellious state. I didn't mm-hmm. care for her. I didn't really like her. She was the total opposite, almost, of the mom that I had known my whole life. And it took some while, It t- well, it took about three years for us to come to an equilibrium where we could actually be civil to each other. Really, it was me. Gotcha. And uh, not being, having a rebellious attitude in my heart, 
And then she ups and gets leukemia. And once she's diagnosed with that, she's gone in about three months. And I'm like, wow. So, so it wasn't, I'm just going to go back to the timeline. So you find out more about your story about 10 years old. And then a year later, your adopted mother um, passes away. Then this other woman shows up. And uh, by the time you're into your early teens, your your uh, father had had married her and uh, she was married. You guys were or they were married for about a year. And then she passes away from what you just uh, walked through. Well, from they they were married for about three years. Oh, OK. I got you. They were married about three years. And um, then she passes away my senior year in high school. Uh, wow. That's just so much for for a young adult to process. It was difficult. It was it was very yeah. difficult. And, and now, what was your? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I wasn't saved then. I went to church. Mm-hmm. I knew God was a reality, but I didn't know Him in the pardon of my sins, and I didn't know Him intimately, you know, through the new birth. So I didn't even have that type of solace and peace and comfort from Him that I could have had. Had I known him personally, I mean, there were people within the family group, naturally, that would try to provide comfort, but it's not the same of the deep soul comfort you need when somebody you love passes away that only God can provide. So there's a big hole emotionally in those adolescent, teenage, young adult years. Yeah, when you... um... I want to go back to the, you know, discovering that your sister lived on the same block. Uh, two questions. First, did you, uh, were you able to meet any of your other siblings or was that the only one? That is the only one. Out of my eight other, she's the only one I know. I don't know the identity of the other seven, which, uh-huh. is, which is a conundrum in and of itself. One small Addendum to that. When my adopted mom died, my natural mother came to the funeral. She came down from New York to Philadelphia for the funeral, but nobody told me she was there or who she was. Now, my mom was a greatly beloved person in the community, in the local church. So the funeral was packed out. I mean, it was like. So you wouldn't even know. I wouldn't have been able to identify her if nobody said, you know, there's your mom over there. I'm like, what? No, nobody did that. And I wasn't too happy about that because I would have wanted to at least say something to her. Like, yo, we need to talk. At least so I can understand why you did what you did. If like, well, it should be obvious. You felt that you were unable, at least tell me why. And we could. But that never happened. So yeah, that's tough. I guess. Oh, I guess your your adopted mom. She was well enough known in the community. That's how probably your your biological mother would know to uh, even that this happened. Um, and then you said shortly thereafter, your biological mother passed away. Well, no. Oh, okay. I to this day do not know ah. if she is deceased or if she is still this side of eternity. I have no wow. idea. <clears throat> I was never. That's... I did a cursory search for her 
once the age of the internet became commonplace and that there were more tools available, but you didn't have to spend a bunch of money to hire a private detective to go look for somebody. And I couldn't find her. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't even isolate the correct census type of records to begin to do a search. So to this day, and I did reconnect with that sister years later, decades later, she doesn't know either whether she's alive or if she has passed on into eternity. Hmm. What was her journey like over those years? Her journey was almost the opposite of mine. Um, unfortunately, as, as a kid, one of the reasons we fought as much as we did, she had a real rebellious streak. She went to a Catholic, or she had a Catholic education, middle school, high school. It never worked out for her. She got pregnant early. I mean, this is her telling me her story. Right. Connected. She got pregnant early. She had a bunch of kids, drugs, found its way into her life. Her her life was a lot of degradation until mm-hmm. late, late in her life. She's older than me. Remember, I'm the youngest of nine. Mm-hmm. Um, she, too, got saved. She found the Lord. Really, God was reaching out to her. Uh, she was able to really kind of get her life together. It was at that point, about five, six years ago, that we actually connected. And um, he had it. Wow. That's a fascinating childhood. Um, all right, we're going to tie this into kind of the next stage. Uh, so you graduate high school. What's going on in the world, and what do you decide to do first? Well, well, it's time for me to graduate in high school. The Vietnam War is deep into its chaos and death. And the uh, I had gotten a draft notice that my draft number was nine. Okay, hold on. Before we go on, I know a lot of folks okay. listening have no idea how this whole thing works. So you you get a letter in the mail, okay. and you get a number. The Break it down for us. Board, at that time, we had a draft. Now you have all-volunteer armed services. Then you didn't. They could conscript you into the armed services to serve your country. Mm. And I had gotten a notice back in January of 68 that my draft number was nine. Now, I also knew that if you were in college, you could get what was known as a 2S student deferment. And you didn't have to answer that call. Well, I had some scholarships to go play football, but the one that I really wanted was at University of Toledo. My parents were like, no, no, we don't want you to go there. Well, I said, well, what about Florida A&M and North Carolina A&T, historically black colleges? No, 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 we want you to go to Temple. Temple? Did you say <laughs> Temple? Well, this is pre-Bill <laughs> Cosby type of Temple. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, no, 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 no. So we, we had a pretty big blow right. up about that. But as the days go along, I'm realizing I need to be somewhere. Otherwise, I'm going to be in Vietnam and most likely die. So I was tutoring uh, this lady's kid. She happened to be on the board of directors at Wilberforce University. She said, well, why don't you come out to Wilberforce? I had never heard of Wilberforce. I said, okay, all right, we'll, we'll take it a look. I'm getting desperate at this time because I know I need to be somewhere. So I applied. Central High mm-hmm. School is all academic high school, all right? 
at that time, we were ranked seventh in the entire country academically, which is a big deal. Also, Hmm. if you meet certain requirements, you can graduate with a degree, which I did. So getting into the workforce Hmm. was not an academic issue. Just had to get all the money together. So I did. And I ended up my freshman year in Wilberforce, which is in Xenia, Ohio, right next door to Central State University, separated by a creek, or as the Southerners okay. would say, a creek. And uh, so that's where I spent my <laughs> freshman year. And I got to tell you, it was some of the best people I have ever met or had the pleasure of being with in my life. Wilberforce. Spell the name of the school yeah, again. W-I-L, Wilbur, E-R-F-O-R-C-E, Wilberforce University. It's named after the famed Englishman who used to be into the slave trade, got saved, and became the advocate in England, in Great Britain, to stop the slave trade by the British. And he was wow. successful in doing that. So they named, wow. his name is William Wilberforce. So they named the university after him. It's literally mm-hmm. one of the oldest black, historically black universities in the country. So my freshman year was awesome. So, well, yeah, so you're having a fantastic time. I realized a painful truth. Wilberforce at that time, its academic standards were not as high as I really wanted them to be. Coming from an all academic high school, I knew the difference between mediocre and outstanding. Mm-hmm. So consequently, I said, you know, if I stay here all four years, I will not be able to compete with people from the Ivy League or other prestigious uh, academic institutions. So Wilberforce didn't have a football team. but uh, So I sent some tape out, Ohio University, Cheney. Cheney got back to me. Ohio University said, yeah, we'll give you a partial. I said, okay, that sounds good. Cheney said, we'll give you a full. And at that time, because you're not from the area, Cheney State College is what it was back in 68, 69. It's Cheney University now. I accepted their offer. Gotcha. You know, scholarships were there. My church gave me a scholarship. So literally, and it's only about 35, maybe 40 minutes outside of Philadelphia. So in other words, I'm back home. I did stay on campus. Mm -hmm. Started playing football for yeah. him. Cheney used to be also known as a party school. And I'm like, hmm, got to watch mm. myself here. At least I fall into that trap of partying too much and not paying attention to my academics. So spent about my sophomore year and my junior year, most of my junior year, at Cheney. Before I, I left Cheney, I dropped out of Cheney. Mm-hmm. We were having some issues in the household, my own household at home. And um, it, it was pretty serious. So I couldn't do both. So jumped into it. Right. Two, two things there. First, um, on just the logistics side, when you decided to you know go to a, a school that had a football program, you know, this is, uh, I'm assuming, kind of late. That would 60s, be early 70s. Is that the ballpark? Cheney State College in 1969. Gotcha. How, you said you sent them a tape. Does someone go in 69? Is someone oh, yeah, filming it's, it's you and a, you're giving them a reel? Is maybe, it like I what? I forget if it was a 16 millimeter, but it is a reel. 
It's, it's nothing digital. Digital didn't exist. Okay. Really. That's exactly right. You had to put right. some work but to even put that together. At that particular time, I was really serious about my football. And as a result, I wanted to be able to play. Now, the truth of the matter is, if Wilberforce's mm-hmm. academic standards had been higher, I would have sacrificed the football to stay there. Okay? Because, like I said, I really, really mm-hmm. liked the people I was matriculating with. Had their academic standards been a little bit higher, I would have stayed. Make no mistake about it. I would have sacrificed football because of the greater goal. But it wasn't. And that was the main reason for transferring. Got it. So after you, uh, you know, hung out at Cheney for for that that period in the sophomore and junior year, um, you decide to to drop out, um, you know, get to work. Uh, well, as you will. I did uh, what did you decide well, to do? Let me just give you a little backdrop that all through the 60s and early 70s, I'm really involved in community activism, protesting and marching, gang intervention, uh, safe streets, doing community educational projects, uh, that sort of thing. So all through this time, I'm really doing this. Let's make this a better living environment for us educationally health-wise, let's be a tool or an instrument in trying to tamp down on the gang problem Philadelphia had in the 60s through the early 70s. So I'm really involved in those type of activities, Black Men on the Moon, like I said, Safe Streets, which became Crisis Intervention Network, which became a very big national thing. So I'm doing these sort of things. So when I jump into the work world, it's in the realm of, I had a choice between doing accounting at Sun Oil, which is now you know as Sunoco, and um, going into Allied Health. And I chose Allied Health. I just couldn't see myself pushing numbers all day long. I couldn't see myself helping people with their health Mm -hmm. situations. So literally, I did nursing as a nursing assistant three, which is totally different than what they have now. I did everything an LGPN would do for about, let's say, eight years at uh, Temple University. How ironic is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson University <laughs> Hospital. Saved some lives while I was working. Yeah. 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 I had a great emergency room type of That's scenario. Fantastic. Domestic violence deal. The young lady had taken a butcher knife to the guy's head, split it right down the middle. And on a Friday night in Philadelphia, Temple, Ooh. It's a crisis, and you're usually overflowing, and every every doctor was super busy. So all I could do was staunch the bleeding and, and sew up superficially the head wound that the gentleman had. Now, obviously, that was beyond the job description, and literally, they could have fired me for that because they would have been <laughs> liable for the insurance uh, viewpoint. Had anything go wrong? Mm-hmm. Blessedly, nothing went wrong. The guy right. would have bled out. I saved his life. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason they didn't like mm-hmm. fire me because it, don't you ever, it's their word, don't you ever do it again. Let him die. And I'm like, mm, okay. Wow. <laughs> This is a debrief afterward. They're saying like, hey, exactly. you got this one, exactly. but don't do this it. again. Now, I know you spent some time with the uh, 
Pennsylvania International Guard. Break down what That's that true. is. I know it's affiliated with the the U.S. Air Force. Um, like, like what what is that All the uh, organization and what type of work did you do there? A reserve component in the Air Force. It's the Air Force Reserve or the Air National Guard. The Air National Guard, whatever state you live in, serves both the federal service as well as the Commonwealth or the state. As a citizen soldier, you have a dual mm -hmm. capacity that if anything breaks out, that's within the purview of your mission, state or Commonwealth-wise, because Pennsylvania is a Commonwealth, not a state, you serve that mission. If anything breaks out on a federal level where the Air Force needs your resources and assets to handle the mission, you serve in that capacity also. So being in the Air National Guard, and to be honest with you, I went to enlist in the Air Force Reserve. The recruiter told me that the group at where I wanted to go were a bunch of jokers and that I should go over to the Air Guard, that's unprecedented. If you know anything about recruiting, they have numbers they have to meet, right? Right. Yep. It's incredible that he would tell me to go to his competitor and be with that group as opposed to filling his own slot. But that's exactly what happened. I went to, to go into the reserve. I ended up in the Air Guard, which beyond a doubt was fortuitous because during my 16 years with him, fought terrorists over in Germany, deployed during NATO reforges a number of times. The, uh, the, the type of things that we did, both on a national and an international scale, were just really tremendous. And wow. the <laughs> No, actually I didn't. Did you expect I didn't know like what to expect other than I knew there was a dual capacity of serving both federally as well as for the Commonwealth. And we did that, you know, in certain emergencies, we would be activated, especially in snow emergencies. You guys get a lot of rain out there. We get a fair amount of snow. It's not like the mm -hmm. northern New England states, but we get, we get enough that at times it can really, really be bad. They would activate us, snow emergency. Uh, Command post type of duties, coordinating the action to relieve the citizens of their distress because of the snow emergencies or what have you. So it's, uh, it's been, it was extremely exciting because it was on active duty for Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Operation Southern Watch. They tasked me to build from the ground up the command post. At our, at our base at Willow Grove. And I was tasked as the non-commissioned officer in charge of training. I had to train the entire officer corps and certify <laughs> them as well as the enlisted people within the command mm. post to be able to do command post functions, which are very critical in prosecuting a war. And uh, even though we were brand new, we were ranked third in the entire country in terms of proficiency, and expertise in command posts because of how God had blessed me to train everybody that worked there. Wow. That's a fascinating experience. Fantastic. Now, um, while you're doing all of this, let's go back. Um, you know, while you're, oh, I guess I don't know what time it is that, you know, probably the mid seventies, uh, you get saved. Um, yes. how, how does that, 
<laughs> 75. 75. Remember the year. Fantastic. <laughs> Bam. I love it. <laughs> How does life change at that inflection point? And what was kind of leading up to the point in your life? I mean, we've heard some of the professional beats there, but what was going on with you uh, that led up to that point? And what was, uh, you know, what changed afterward? I had moved back from New Jersey and I had a room with a pastor. He had a very big house in this Fairmount section of Philadelphia. And I, I knew there was something missing. Job was fine. Relationships with women were okay. But there was something missing. And um, he had purchased, or actually was renting, what used to be a Sunray drugstore at 54 and Woodman. And so we had to rebuild it on the inside. And while we were rebuilding that, excuse me, one Wednesday, because I worked at night, so I was able to help do some of the labor during the day. We had a noontime Bible study, and it actually was on the crucifixion. We were in the Gospel of Matthew. And but you understand, I've been raised in the church. I knew what the Bible said, but none of that had been really applied. So we're having a new Bible study about the crucifixion, and it finally hit me. I couldn't save myself. I was kind of banking on my own little righteousness. And we, we did this thing, we kind of what we call, call run the numbers, which is the question was asked me, well, at the age of five, did you know right from wrong? I said, yeah, I knew right from wrong when I was five years old. He said, okay, let's say you only did five wrong things or five sins a day, every day, for a year. That's like 1,835 cents. Of course, you realize five a day is a ridiculously low minimum. So how old are you now? Well, I'm so-and-so, so let's do the math. Let's take 1835, the difference between five and where you are. And I think at that time, it was like 27,000 plus sins. They said, well, Rick, have you done 27,000 plus righteous things to outweigh the 27,000 sins? And the obvious answer was no. Well, that means your righteousness don't count for nothing. Because it doesn't outweigh or outnumber the number of sins that you've done. So how are you going to get saved? How are you going to save yourself? I said, but I can't. I said, now do you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ took your sins on the cross and paid your sin debt, which you now see you cannot pay? And it went, bing. The light finally went off. I'm like, oh, my Lord, I'm going to bust hell wide open. Right. And he says, yeah, there ain't going to be no friends there with no party in hell either. I'm like, man. So I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I agree with you. But you saved me. I repent. The 180 degree turn, the way I was headed. Now, mind you, I thought I was a pretty decent guy. I didn't smoke no joint, didn't kick the dog, paid my taxes. You know, hey, I'm not running around hurting anybody. Right. I was all right. I wasn't. I asked him to save me right there on the spot, and he did. I literally felt the filth of my sins wash off me. It was a physical manifestation of his cleansing power. Yeah. And now I had peace with God. I had the peace of God. And I had 
a purpose for living that was beyond any selfish ambitions that I had set for myself. It's obviously, you can see, I'm like a goal-oriented, hard driver type of person. I guess, what do you call that, type A personality? And uh, I had some things out there that I thought I wanted to do. Now it became, Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you, you you formed me in my mother's womb. You gave me certain talents. Uh, This is looking back a little bit. And you're giving me supernatural talents, spiritual gifts. Now, I couldn't have articulated that in October 75. I can do it now because I'm a minister of the gospel. But you've given me a mission that's beyond anything. Here are my talents. Here's my time. Let's get after it. What do you want me to do? So he literally, two years later, had me start doing creation, science, and apologetics which grew into the formal ministry that it is now, I'd say in 1998, it became a formal form of ministry, like, you know, tax ID, that whole nine yards, of the Philadelphia Society for Creation Science. I teach creation science, lecturing Mm -hmm. in colleges and universities and churches and schools and all over the world, South Africa, so forth and so on. And teach apologetics, which is I teach believers how to defend their faith from a rational, biblical perspective. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, break down the key elements in creation science that you need to or you want to land when you sit down with someone like, like, you know, is it, you know, whether it's lack of awareness, ignorance or some other thing, what are some of the key points that uh, folks need to get That's exposed a great question. to? Um, and what I try to, to do is I start with the bedrock foundation that they can actually trust the word of God and what the word of God says. It is actually authoritative from the very first to the very last verse. I point out to them that it's history is 100% accurate, that it's science, considering you get taught evolution and naturalism in schools, that it's science is confirmed and its prophecies are fulfilled. That gives it a solid foundation to move out from there to extol that the Lord God is your creator and he has created everything. And then I usually proceed to give them some examples scientifically that show that. I show them what the Word of God says, and I show them some science examples of that. Okay? And then I usually break the conversation out from there because they, almost everybody has some questions, especially if they happen to be a believer and they're not a skeptic or a mocker or a critic, and they go, well, what about this? Or what about that? I said, Good question. Let's see if we can answer that. Now, because I've been doing this since 1978, and I'm affiliated as a ministry partner with Answers in Genesis, and have a working relationship with the Institute for Creation Research, I have, you see how you have all that stuff behind you? If I were to take you into the dining room, you'd really see I've got resources like a public library. So... I have studied to show myself approved in this area. And because God has gifted me with oration 
it's very easy for me to answer questions, answer objections, point them to the truth in the Word of God, point them to empirical evidence in science, and let the Holy Spirit do the convicting work. I do not try to convince somebody against their will. I don't argue with somebody. They have an opposing view, or even if they're a believer and they don't see it the way I see it, I don't try to bully them, you know, with my experience, with my titles, and all that stuff. Well, what's wrong with you? How come you don't see that? And I don't go there. I don't go there because right. in this whole program what I've been doing, I've led Not productive. close to 3,500 people to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Because at its essence, it's evangelical and outreach, even though it's creation science, it's apologetics. Mm -hmm. I'm in front of a lot of people who have never, ever repented of their sins and asked Christ to save them, young as well as old. And so I have the opportunity to be in front of them and to present Christ, present the word of God, and lead them. And you can't do that if you're contentious or you want to be argumentative or you try to bully from a bully pulpit, to quote a phrase, bully people into believing the way you believe. You can't do that. And you're not supposed to do that. God himself doesn't do that. He presents himself. Here I am. Here's my character. Here's what I do. Won't you come to me? It's an act of the will. And so I never violate somebody's will. I let them be influenced by the Holy Spirit to come to a certain conclusion. And then I answer all your questions as best I can, because it's real simple. I'm kind of known as the black answer man. And if I can't answer your question right now, face to face, I usually say to you, can I get back to you? Because I know I have all the resources available to get you your answer. Okay, so I get back to you which is rare, yep. but it does happen. And I answer their question. You know, whether they say yay or nay, well, I'm going to think about it. Fine. I, right. I presented you with an answer to you. You get that theory. answer. Now, what I find interesting um, about where you decided to kind of focus here is uh, it, it feels like it is a... Uh, a natural intersection of uh, your journey. And uh, so you've kind of taken these tools that you've picked up along the way and uh, really baked them into the belief, into your, into your beliefs. What, you know, was there a moment or is there something that happened uh, when you were young that exposed you to science? Yeah, can you, you bring this in, you know, you know, the strong academic background, but, but specifically science, was there any kind of childhood moment where you look back and you're like, you know, that was one of the moments that put me on my curiosity quest Third grade, um, to kind of dig school. in more. I did a uh, science project on mm -hmm. uh, hurricanes and tornadoes. And I got an A plus for it. And the fascination with science started there. Mm -hmm. I should add that um, as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. At that time, you know, you go through the program where you're a pilot first and you move along with your master's degree in aerospace engineering, right. so forth and so on. You couldn't be a pilot and wear glasses. Mm -hmm. They changed that 
what in my hmm. era coming through, you couldn't. So they said, well, son, the Air Force recruiter came to my junior high school, which they call middle school now, my junior high school, seventh grade, and gave us this Air Force recruiting film. I'm jacked. I'm t that, that's it. I'm going to join the Air Force Academy. Right. I'm going to be a pilot. I'm going to follow the track to be an astronaut. And so, you know, they have a Q&A after the film. And I go, sir, sir, sir. I wear glasses. Is that going to be a problem? Well, son, yeah, well, best you could do is be like an engineer or something like that, but you can't fly in a plane. I'm like, what? It was a real bummer. But it didn't, it didn't dampen my enthusiasm for science, particularly space science. Biology and space science were just mm -hmm. a real fascination with it. And to show you how God works these things out, I was able to go to the NASA Space Academy for educators back in 2010. So I got the opportunity to wow. be the commander of a simulated trip to the ISS, International Space Station, you know, full crew. At that time, they had a full-size mock-up of the Atlantis space shuttle. Exact mock-up, not mm -hmm. what they've got there now. They've dummied it down. I mean, it was exactly the way the real shuttle was. And, you know, you train for the mission, and then you execute the mission. Small side story to that. As the commander, you're responsible for liftoff and then bringing your crew back. The pilot is the docking and other stuff. But as the commander, that's your responsibility besides make, executing the mission. On the first day of practice that we were doing this, I'm landing the space shuttle to the left, to the right, everywhere but down the middle. So, uh, that night I went, when we went back to the dorm, because you stay on the campus of the University of Alabama at Huntsville, um, Lord, I am not getting this done. And I must bring my crew back safely. I'm going to need your supernatural help. So I prayed that. Next day, it was time to, you know, detach from the ISS and do our reentry thing, which is a tricky thing in itself, but nailed that part. Now it's time to land. And I can tell in back of me, my crew is like, is this boy going to land this thing or not? <laughs> But because I had prayed and asked God for a supernatural ability to do it, he did. I put it right down on the runway, dead smack in the middle, mm. mission accomplished. And I let out a child. I said, hallelujah. And uh, they were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so, I knew you'd be shouting and praising the you Lord did. and thanking him also. I said, okay, okay, all right. Chill, Rick. But, no, that... That's that's fantastic. Just that you know, having that moment as a child, and then having that moment, it, it you know, in your adult life, where that all mm -hmm. kind of comes together. Yeah. Now I know you've taken some other trips. Uh, tell me about this um, uh, expedition uh, in the Grand Canyon. Because the president of PSCS Ministries and affiliated as a ministry partner with Answers in Genesis, they gave me a scholarship to mm -hmm. participate in the Christian Leaders mm -hmm. International Expedition to the Grand Canyon. That's eight days and seven nights down in the gorge on the river where we're exploring all of the geological formations that carved out the canyon as a result of Noah's flood. At the end of the flood, there were these two big lakes. They breached their earthen dams and they literally 
while the sediment is extremely soft from the deluge, carves out the Grand Canyon. And so we're there exploring all the geological evidence that actually supports that. You've got rock that's folded at a 90-degree angle. The basalts and, and, and the other geological formations and the fossils and so forth. And uh, it was just fabulous. It was fantastic. It was a learning experience like any other. Anytime you're in the field and you're outside of the classroom, you get to touch, examine with your own mm -hmm. hands. It's that tactile experience. There's no substitute for it. And um, I should add the Colorado River has some of the fastest, most violent white water rapids in the entire country. I think there's like 17 altogether, 14 of which are the most rapid or fast, violent uh, white water rapids in the entire country. On one of them, I actually ripped my, I tore my mm. bicep tendon. Fortunately, we were like in day wow. five, I believe it was, when that, when that happened. So this just like so well, the was, strenuous, actually, the level of strenuous activity. It was like you were hold doing something. Hold on to the rope or go into the Colorado River. I decided to hold on to the rope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was you not going into the, the uh, drink. Torn bicep. <laughs> I just yeah. wasn't. Especially not in that area because mm -hmm. the rapids, <laughs> you have all these rocks. That's what forms the rapids. The disturbance in the normal flow of the river as they go, mm -hmm. the, as the water navigates the rocks forms the rapids and it's yeah. not the safest place we all have vests yeah. on but you're going overboard into a rocky turbulent area and i said i'm holding on for dear life i am not letting go now i'm not thinking if it rips it rips it did that but i was not letting go it was a death grip for life i don't want to put it that way yeah you kind of see that yes. impact of, uh, kind of Noah's flood, right? You're living it out in real time. That's fascinating. Well, one more trip um, I wanted to touch on, uh, your missionary trip to South Africa. Um, kind of how did that come about and uh, what did you, uh, what did you see there? The person who had leadership for Answers in Genesis in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa had heard about the ministry that we were doing here in the States. And they were affiliated with this church in South Africa, in Richards Bay. And they were going to be putting on a huge campaign, a huge conference that was going to encompass almost a month of teaching creation, science, and apologetics in South Africa because they saw a trend where in that country, too many of the population were beginning to embrace evolution, naturalism, and they saw that as being alarming. So they put together a campaign. The, uh, the doc who headed up AIG, Answers in Genesis, vetted me and then recommended me as part of the team to participate in this campaign. So they said, listen, why don't you come on over? Why don't you do this? And I was like, okay, sure. Now, you got to understand, usually when I go someplace and teach or do whatever I do, I get paid for doing that. <laughs> so they said, no, 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 no. You, right. you, you must understand. 
you're doing this as a missionary. I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And I played a little dumb on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> said, well, no, no, you got to pay your way here and back. Once you get here, we'll take care of you. Okay. All right. Now, mind you, I never had to raise support for anything. And now I found myself, at, you know, get my passport. There were some technical difficulties in finding my birth certificate because I was born in New York. Wasn't here in Philly. Um, I couldn't find the original, so I had to jump through some hoops to get that. But to make a long story short, I did a GoFundMe campaign. And the GoFundMe campaign more than adequately took care of any funds that I needed to get there and to come back. So that's taken care of. I go, um, we minister to kids from grade school through college. I get the opportunity to lecture in uh, Zululand University there in their physics and, and um, department. Uh, high schools, churches, uh, leadership groups. Yeah. It, it was just really, really fantastic. Yep. Kids, there were kids then, they're young adults now, uh, still stay in contact with me through our Facebook page, The Defenders. Um, and we stay in touch because of that. And then when I went back, they asked me to come back in 2016. First trip was 2012. Second trip was 2012. 16, uh, you'll like this. He said to me, all right, we want you to come, but you have to bring your wife with you. And I was like, okay. Because you were kind of looking on a miserable side because your wife wasn't with you. You were here almost a whole month. I said, okay, all right. So I said, well, that's double the cost. And, and I said, but you know what? The Lord <laughs> took care of the first one. He'll take care of this because they're asking me to come. It's not like I'm going to do an ego thing or anything here. Right. Took care of everything. In fact, I had enough left over to give them scholarship money for kids to go to a camp that they had, the host church, Calvary Church, uh, they had during the summer. So Vicki and I, my wife Vicki and I, we went in 2016. Fantastic. Did a leadership retreat. Did, did more conference, you know, presentations. Yeah. First trip, a couple hundred yeah. people got saved. Second trip, about the same. So you're talking about not only building up or edifying people in the body of Christ, but you're also talking about introducing Christ and creation and answering questions to the point where not only just kids, but adults give their hearts and lives to the Lord. So mm -hmm. an incredibly Two fruitful mm -hmm. trips to South Africa, and we did the whole, almost the whole country that first trip from north to south to east to west. Oh wow! I mean, we made stops everywhere. I, I really do. Amazing! I bet you South some fantastic Africa, photos. topographically, is very similar to the United States. There are portions that look like the West, like Montana, Idaho. Um, I mean, yes. Burton, Green Valleys. I mean. It's got a variety of terrain. It's a very fascinating country. Yeah, yeah I've been to Joburg and Cape Town, right. uh, but I haven't been yeah. as far as like Durban and some of the other places. Well, you know for yourself, I haven't been yeah, to at least that's to Joburg, a fantastic which is experience. What they call it. South Africa is a very unique place. 
I think for you and I to have been yeah, there absolutely. after apartheid, you know, was the rule of the day. Um, it's a fascinating experience. Yeah, definitely. Now, you talked about kind of bringing this all together, um, you know, making that trip uh, the second time with your wife. You know, as we talked about this uh, kind of whole adventure that you've been on, which is it, it is just fascinating, you know, all these moments where you've, uh, you know, you've had to kind of face some type of adversity and you always kind of find that path out. Do you think anything from your childhood has better prepared you for how you look at relationships yes. and family now really? as an adult? My adopted mom dying when I was 11, with my stepmom dying my senior year in high school. My dad died. My adopted dad died seven years after that. And then my sister died two years after that. That's, that's a lot of death mm. at a young age. Even if her dying, I was a young adult. It's still a lot of death. And that I felt that that actually prepared me. I did not see that at the time immediately mm-hmm. but in retrospect I can see how that prepared me because God did comfort me after I got saved especially for my dad and my sister in a very unique special way if you're familiar with what the word of God says in 2 Corinthians the first chapter it talks about God being a, com- a God of comfort for those who need it and that I in turn mm-hmm. comfort others who are grieving and who are bereaved with the same sort of comfort he comforted me. So having experienced that much death prepares me to really come alongside somebody now who's experiencing loss and grief and bereavement. And they just tore up from losing their loved one, no matter who it was, mother, father, sister, brother, spouse, doesn't matter. They tore up emotionally. And they need mm-hmm. comfort. I've experienced God's comfort enough times to be able to be a comfort to them. I would probably say that is the most significant thing that factors into my ministry of life today. But I, I always saw my life like Moses. You know, kill the baby, mm-hmm. toss him into the Nile rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh. You know, Moses goes along a really unique journey. He doesn't become the Moses of Moses until he's 80 years old. Okay? 40 years as a prince of Egypt. 40 years on the backside of the desert with the Ishmaelites. And then God calls him to lead his people out of bondage. And so there are a lot of things in Moses' life that I kind of relate to on a personal level that Overcoming adversity and obstacles, it's a part of life. I, I felt I learned as a child, life is not a yellow brick road. And clicking your heels, Dorothy, is not going to take you back to Kansas. So my mindset was, I'm mm-hmm. not boohooing because I have an obstacle or I'm facing adversity. It's like, let's get after this. Let's overcome the obstacle, the problem, the adversity and meet it head on, not run away from it or make like it doesn't exist. That kind of was a molding I had. Of course, I couldn't have articulated that as a kid, 
But in retrospect, I can see that now. Sure. That those forces, those things were moving in my life. I mean, obviously, in, in a short hour, we can't even begin to really touch some of the escapades and adventures that God has taken me on. But as an overview, I would say those two things would correlate at the very core as to who I am. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, you are an explorer, a teacher, minister of the gospel, athlete, soldier, yeah, adventurer. Yeah. Like it's a tremendous uh, uh, journey. It's, it's pretty pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you for Thanks having me on. Before we wrap up, you know, what message would you share with the world in addition to some of the things we've discussed? But if you were kind of leaving us with uh, one the or two chaos things, what would you, you share? In the world today, not just the United States, but on a global scale. It's already been prophesied and predicted by the Lord is Olivet Discourse. The times that we live in, I don't want you to be taken surprised at the abysmal behavior of people, of governments. God said in these latter days this would happen. Prepare yourself, especially if you're a believer, stay on mission. Fulfill your mandate. Share the gospel in power and in love. Win people to the Lord. See them be transformed. And do it in a manner that glorifies him. It edifies you. And this will be your finest hour. Let it be your finest hour because of that. That's, it's a message of hope. In the middle of chaos, that your God is greater than the circumstances that you might be facing both individually, personally, as well as a people group, as well as citizens of this nation, or whatever nation you call home, there is hope. And your God loves you with an everlasting love. Never, ever forget that. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, this was a fantastic discussion. Hopefully it's inspired you and uh, maybe uh, giving you some inspiration to go look into some of these topics or, or uh, um, things that we've talked today uh, in more detail. Um, hope you've enjoyed us. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, as usual, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.